Hello. Welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja, and today I'm here to continue our conversation and our reading of Edward Said's Orientalism. Now, if you've been watching this series, we've already covered part one of the introduction, which you can clearly see. I'll post it up there. And today, our plan is to read and talk about part two of the introduction to Orientalism. Now, before we move into part two, we already know briefly, if you watched the first uh, conversation, that in this part, Said has attempted or attempts to explain what precisely is he dealing with in this book? What generalizations that he has assumed and why and what is the project of the book, right? So like I did in my first lecture, we'll read parts of the text and then talk about it. And while I do that, while I finish this lecture, of course, you're all welcome to post your questions in the comments. I would really, really appreciate that so that I can build up on that. So we go to the reading, and here is where it starts. I have begun with the assumption that the Orient is not an inert fact of nature. It is not merely there, just as the Occident itself is not just there either. We must take seriously Vico's great observation that men make their own history that what they can know is what they have made and extend it to geography as both geographical and cultural entities to say nothing of historical entities, such locales, regions, geographical sectors as Orient and Ox Occident are man-made. So a little bit of an explanation here. Okay, so um, he's talking, of course, of uh, Giambattista Vico. Right now, both Vico and Marx have opined about the idea of men as makers of their own reality and history. But there is a slight difference. The reason he's invoking Vico and not Marx is because in Vico's articulation of assuming how men make their own reality, he is ideology, idea, he uses an ideologist approach. It's based in thinking and thought, whereas in Marx, the explanation is materialistic. So men make their own world because they materially work to do so. So that's the subtle difference, and hence his choice of Vico over Marx, because he is dealing with ideas, right? But the very first thing that he's clarifying here is, one, that, ori that the Orient is not an inert body of a place, right? It, it is as diverse as the Occident itself. And two, let's continue reading because there are certain clarifications that he's making here, which a lot of critics of Said forget about when they criticize the book. Okay, so it's an actual place, right? There is no denying that. So anyone who tries to attempts to say that Said is basically saying that Orient is a pure construct, they are wrong. So 
Therefore, as much as the West itself, the Orient is an idea that has a history and a tradition of thought, imagery and vocabulary that have given it reality and presence in and for the West. The two geographical entities thus support and to an extent reflect each other. Okay, so this reflection between the Orient and the Occident is based in physical locations that exist, right? That's the point that he's trying to make over here. But let's go a little further. Having said that, one must go on to state a number of reasonable qualifications, qualifications to his own statement, right? Why is he making those statements? In the first place, it would be wrong to conclude that the Orient was essentially an idea or a creation with no corresponding reality. Let me read it again. In the first place, it would be wrong to conclude that the Orient was essentially an idea or a creation with no corresponding reality. When Desirelli said in his novel Tanker that East was a career, he meant that to be interested in the East was something bright young Westerners would find to be an all-consuming passion. He should not be interpreted as saying that the East was only a career for Westerners. There were and are cultures and nations whose location is in the East and their lives, histories and customs have a brute reality obviously greater than anything that could be said about them in the West. About that fact, this study of Orientalism has very little to contribute ex except to acknowledge it tacitly. Now, this is one of the most crucial points in the introduction. Look, he starts with telling us the readers that he absolutely knows that the Orient actually is a physical space, just as the Occident is, and it's not an inert space, and that it has had its own history, its own people, its own imaginations, right? That must be acknowledged so that one doesn't continue thinking that Orient is just a pure construct made by the Europeans. But what he's also then declaring is that that is not the purpose of this study. He will only tacitly acknowledge that because he is not trying to tell us the history of the Orient itself, right? That's an important point because anyone who criticizes Said, especially Orientalism, for not saying much about the Orientals themselves, or some people even blame him for silencing them, forget that he defines it in the very introduction as to what his project is. And his project is not to trace the histories, the writings, and the stories of the so-called Orient. The project is to study Orientalism, right? except to acknowledge it tacitly. But the phenomena of Orientalism, as I study it here, deals principally not with the correspondence between Orientalism and Orient, but with the internal consistency of Orientalism and its ideas about the Orient. 
the East as career, despite or beyond any correspondence or lack thereof with the real Orient. My point is that Disraeli's statement about the East refers mainly to that created cons consistency, that regular constellation of ideas as the preeminent thing about the Orient, Orient and not to its mere being, as Wallace Stevens' phrase has it. Okay, so Wallace Stevens' phrase comes uh, from his collection of essays, The Necessary Angel right, in which he's talking about imagination and he famously says that reality is something that we escape through metaphor. You can read the whole book uh, to look further into it. But here is it where precisely what he's saying is after acknowledging that the Orient does exist, that it has material history and the brute reality of life, right, it has its peoples, it has had nations, but his project is absolutely to read how the Orient is constructed in Western imagination through a thing that he calls Orientalism. That's the project of the book. So if you don't see much of a say about what the Orientals themselves thought about it, that is not the project of the book. And as we read this introduction, it becomes clearer, right? And that's the point I'm trying to highlight in this reading is that one cannot read Orientalism without looking into the nuances of the text. Okay, a second qualification is that ideas, cultures, and histories cannot seriously be understood or studied without their force or more precisely their configuration of power also being studied. So here he's going into any idea that we want to study, may it be colonialism, may it be cultural production. We can't do an atomistic reading of the idea itself or an act itself, right? A full reading of an idea or a concept, a richer reading would always be when we read the power structure within which the idea is produced namely then the discourse, right? So that is another qualification that what he's going to do is not just present reality and ideas, but also contend with how power plays a role in it. Without that, Orientalism is not possible. Okay, I'll keep reading. To believe that the Orient was created or, or as I call it, orientalized, and to believe that such things happen simply as a necessity of the imagination is to be disingenuous. Why? Because, I mean, individual beings didn't create the Orient, right? The Orient already existed, but there was a power dynamic that made it possible for certain people from Europe to visit the Orient, to write about it, to produce knowledge about it. So that doesn't happen in a vacuum. That happens within a power structure, right? The relationship between Occident and Orient is a relationship of power of domination, of varying degrees of a complex hegemony, and is quite accurately indicated in the title of K.M. Panikkar's classic, Asia and Western Dominance. Now, Panikkar was an Indian politician and statesman, and this is one of his books, right? The Orient was orientalized not only because it was discovered to be oriental in all those ways considered 
commonplace by an average 19th century European, but also because it could be that is submitted to being made Oriental. So here is he reading the power, right? It's not just that Europeans created this view of the Orient and then perpetuated it through a discourse. It's that they had the power to do so. No, he doesn't say it here, or maybe in the later he, he'll mention it. There is an interview of Edward Said also available on YouTube where he talks about this, where he talks about the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt, right? And what he's talking about is, is that when Napoleon goes there, he doesn't just land there with an army and navy. He also brings with him an army of about 3,000 scholars and scientists, right? And they record Egypt for the European consumption. That's the power that he's talking about. The power to be there and then the power to record, to inscribe the space that you have just captured where you have power the way you want to, to do research on it. And Said would say that there is no corresponding experience from the Orient side. You know, they haven't come to United States and captured it and wrote its history. That's the power structure that he's talking about right here. So the Orient can be orientalized because the power structure is such that the European writers, scientists, anthropologists can orientalize it, right? I'll keep reading a little more. Okay. There is very little consent to be found, for example, in the fact that Flaubert's encounter with an Egyptian courtesan produced a widely influential model of the Oriental woman, right? And so this is uh, Flaubert and a couple of others, French writers, uh, building their female characters on the figure of Kuchak Hanen, right? She was a courtesan, right? And how could they do that? She never spoke for herself. She never represented her emotions, presence, or history, right? He spoke for and represented her, Flaubert, right? He was foreign, comparatively wealthy, male, and these were historical facts of domination that allowed him not only to possess Khanem physically, but to speak for her and tell his readers in what way she was typically oriental. Okay, my argument is that Flaubert's situation of strength in relation to Khanem was not an isolated instance. It fairly stands for the pattern of relative strength between East and West and the discourse about the Orient, Orient that it enabled. So here is it, like in, in the form of an individual exchange, Flaubert meets this courtesan, probably possesses her body, right? But then he makes her into an analog for Oriental women because she doesn't tell her story. No one knows what she had to say about her experience, right? He gets to write about her to represent her as a typically oriental courtesan or woman and then build around it the idea of the oriental sensual woman. All of that is possible 
because there is a power difference. The Orientalist, the European has the power to tell the story, to write it and to perpetuate it. And this model, right, is the model that the larger discourse of Orientalism also follows, right? Let's go on. This brings us to third qualification. So the first qualification that he made was that he is not suggesting that Orient was purely an idea, that it actually physically existed. The second qualification is that you can't just simply read the instance of something happening. You have to read it within the structure of power within which that is, it is produced. And the third qualification he's going, this brings us to the, the third qualification. One ought never... to assert that the structure of Orientalism is nothing more than structure of lies or myths, which were the truth about them to be that would simply blow away. So this argument should never be that this was a myth created out of nowhere, that it was built on lies, because what he's saying is that is if everything in it is a lie and is built in fiction, that's a very easy thing to refute. It shouldn't be able to sustain itself. So what must we keep in mind? I myself believe that Orientalism is not particularly value as a, valuable as a sign of European Atlantic power or the Orient than it is as a veridic discourse about the Orient. Orient, which is what in its academic or scholarly form it claims to be, that it's not just what Orientalism says or does, that it offers itself as a discourse of truth, right? And that is what is important to acknowledge. What is a veridic discourse? A veridic discourse is which claims to be truthful, right? And which has the power to perpetuate itself through institutions of learning and through other institutions, right? Sorry, I have a little bit of problem reading because my scan didn't come out good, but I'll keep going. Nevertheless, what we must respect and try to grasp is the sheer knitted together strength of Oriental discourse. It's very close ties to the enabling socioeconomic and political institutions and its redoubtable durability. After all, any system of ideas that can remain unchanged as teachable wisdom in academic books, congresses, universities, foreign service institutes, from the period of Ernest Renan in the late 1840s until the present in the United States must be something more formidable than a mere collection of lies, right? So what he's suggesting is that this argument that some scholars might make that this was all a fiction and built on lies is unsustainable and it's unsustainable because it has lived on and no simple lies, flagrant lies can live on like that in institutions. So what is he saying? Orientalism, therefore, is not an airy European fantasy about the Orient, okay? But a created body of theory and practice in which the many generations, there has been a considerable material investment. So once again, that it's not an accident. It's not necessarily built on lies, but it's built on sustained discourse, 
right? And we already talked about discourse. Continued investment made Orientalism as a system of knowledge about the Orient, an accepted grid for filtering through the Orient into Western consciousness, just as the same investment multiplied, indeed made truly productive the statements proliferating out from Orientalism into the general culture. So whatever was said, written about the Orient was based in a certain specific discourse, which was powerful enough not just to circulate amongst the academic circles, but made its place in the popular domain as well, right? And then he's going on to Antonio Gramsci, right? Gramsci has made the useful analytic distinction between civil and political society in which the former is made up of voluntary or at least rational and non-coercive affiliations like schools, families, and unions, the latter of state inst institution, the army, the police, the central bureaucracy, whose role in the polity is direct domination. So this is his reference to Gramsci's theorization of, of course, dominance and hegemony. Right. I do have um, a video on dominance and hegemony. I'll post it up uh, as a card. Uh, you can watch it. Uh, but let's go into it. Right. So Antonio Gramsci, while theorizing how power works, right, talks about these two modes in which power works. One is, of course, dominance, which is the brute force of the state function through the army, through the police. But most of the times he suggests that power works through hegemonic means. And what is that? Hegemony is when an elite, when a powerful elite creates at least an illusion of consent on the part of the people, right? So that they willingly accept the power structure, right? So what he's talking about now in terms of the discourse of Orientalism is that it relies on that kind of hegemonic exchange, right? Culture, of course, is to be found operating within civil society. So um, Gramsci also divides the society into political and you know, civil society. And then civil society is non-governmental institutions, right? Journalists, writers, artists, and culture is the domain of civil society, right? So culture, of course, is to be found operating within civil society where the influence of ideas, of institutions, and of other persons work, work, works not through domination, but by what Gramsci calls consent, right? I already talked about it. In any society not totalitarian, then certain cultural forms predominate over others, just as certain ideas are more influential than others. The form of this cultural leadership is what Gramsci has identified as hegemony, an indispensable concept for any understanding of cultural life in the industrial West. It is hegemony, or rather the result of cultural hegemony at work, that gives Orientalism the durability and the strength I have been speaking about so far. 
So these ideas of the Orient then are not necessarily just top down. They become popular, right? And when they become popular, there is a general consensus amongst the people, amongst Europeans to read and consume these texts and then willingly accept the way the Orient is represented. That is the consent that he's talking about over here, right? That the discourse of Orientalism is hegemonic in nature. It's not top down. It's not forced through government actions, even though governments are involved. It is hegemony or rather the result of cultural hegemony at work that gives Orientalism the durability and the strength I have been speaking about so far. Orientalism is never far from what Dennis Hay has called the idea of Europe, a collective notion identifying us European as against all those non-Europeans. And indeed, it can be argued that the major component in European culture is precisely what made that culture hegemonic both in and outside Europe. The idea of European identity as a superior one in comparison with all the non-European peoples and cultures. So this is the hegemonic self-presentation of Europe as superior, as rational, right? And since people have bought into that, then that is what against which they must juxtapose the Orient itself. And then in a way, as a reversal, the Orient comes to stabilize this self-presentation, this idea of the cultural self. But that idea of Europe is also hegemonically produced. There is, in addition, the hegemony of European ideas about the Orient themselves, reiterating European superiority over Oriental backwardness, usually overriding the possibility that a more independent or more skeptical thinker might, might have had different views on the matter. Okay, so this is crucial. A body of knowledge exists, which is called Orientalism, right? And in the process of defining their own identity, to which Europeans willingly consent as dynamic, as developing, as liberal, whatever you want to call it, Hand in hand with that is the construction of the Orient as well, right? So people, while they buy into this idea that they are superior, they are also then being proffered through the discourse of Orientalism, through cultural production within the cultural realm to internalize the idea of Orient as this other place in opposition to their own European sensibilities, which is all the things that they are not, right? And that is the part of Orientalist discourse. In a quite constant way, Orientalism depends for its strategy on this flexible positional superiority, which puts the Western in a, Western in a whole series of possible relationships with the Orient without ever losing him the relative upper hand. So the relative inequality of the two situations constantly centers the European self. And why should it have been otherwise, especially during the period of extraordinary European ascendancy from the late Renaissance to the present? 
the scientist, the scholar, the missionary, the trader, or the soldier was in or thought, thought about the Orient because he could be there or could think about it with very little resistance on the Orient's part. So it's same reference to the power to do what, to, what they did, right? As thinkers, as well as as people traveling through the Orient. Under the general heading of knowledge of the Orient and within the umbrella of Western hegemony over the Orient during the period from the end of the 18th century, there emerged a complex Orient suitable study in the academy for display in the museums, for reconstruction in the colonial office, for theoretical illustration in anthropological, biological, linguistic, racial and historical thesis about mankind and the universe, for instances of economic and sociological theories of development, revolution, cultural personality, national or religious character. So from the 18th century onward, as Europe expands, along with it emerges, East as a career, right? This power to study the Orient as an object of study. That's what he's talking about, right? Additionally, the imaginative exa examination of things oriental was based more or less exclusively upon a sovereign Western, Western consciousness out of whose unchallenged centrality and an oriental world emerged. First, according to general ideas about who or what was an oriental, then according to a detailed logic governed not simply by empirical reality, but by a battery of desires, repressions, investments, and projections. If we can point to great Orientalist works of general scholarship, like the Sesi's uh, Christomethy Arab or Edward William Lane's, sorry, my French is not good. Edward William Lane's account of the manners and customs of the modern Egyptians, we need also to note that Renan's and Gobineau's racial ideas came out of the same impulse, as did a great many Victorian pornographic novels, right? So this is the power of this discourse, right? The discourse is enabled because the European discursively develop an idea of who they are, right? But along with that, they have the power to define what Orient is discursively, and they internalize that view. Then around that discourse develops a whole body of academic work, the historians, the writers, the travel writers, the novelists. But then there is a whole genre of the oriental pornographic novel, the penny novels, right? All of this then in one way or the other comes together to define and talk about Orient and to imagine the Orient within certain given tropes. And that is what he calls, you know, Orientalism. I hope this is making sense. Okay. And yet one must repeatedly ask oneself whether that matters in Orientalism is the general group of ideas overriding the mass of material about which who could deny that they were shot through with doctrines of European superiority, various kinds of racisms, imperialism, and the like, dogmatic views of the Oriental as a kind of ideal and unchanging 
abstraction, or the much more varied work produced by almost unaccountable individual writers whom one would take up as individual instances of authors dealing with the Orient. In a sense, the two alternatives, general and particular, are really two perspectives on the same material. In both instances, one would have to deal with pioneers in the field like William Jones, with great artists like Nahual or Flaubert. And why would it not be possible to employ both perspectives together or one after the other? Isn't there an obvious danger of distortion of precisely the kind that academic oriental has always been prone to if either too general or too specific of a level of description is maintained systematically. So pointing out two things here, right? How ought we to study the Orient? Should we rely on the larger discourses that define the Orient, that give it a name, that give it a feel, right? within which everyone is producing, or to do an atomistic reading, to just focus on individual works and see what one person says about it or what the other. These are the two alternatives of studying. And he's basically suggesting, what is it that we ought to study? My two fears are distortion and inaccuracy. Okay. If we employ a general mode of reading the Orient or Orientalism, or just a specific mode of reading one or two texts, there are these two fears that emerge. My two fears are distortion and inaccuracy, or rather the kind of inaccuracy produced by too dogmatic a generality and too positivistic a localized focus, right? So too dogmatic a generality is to read everything in huge generalizations. or to be too atomistic, right? Too positivistic by picking up one or two things, reading them and maybe extrapolating from them. These are the two things one ought not to do, right? In trying to deal with these problems, I have tried to deal with three main aspects of my own contemporary reality that seem to me to point the way out of the methodological or perspectival difficulties I have been discussing difficulties that might force one in the first instance into writing a course polemic on so unacceptably general a level of description as not to be worth the effort, or in the second instance into writing so detailed and atomistic a series of analyses as to lose all track of the general lines or force informing the field, giving it its special cogency. How then to recognize individuality and to reconcile it with its intelligent and by no means passive or merely dictatorial, general and hegemonic concept. All right, so we have reached the end of part two. Let me briefly unpack what he's just saying. So what he's saying is that he foresees two methodological problems in attempting to write about Orientalism. One is if one gets caught in this large generalization of Orientalism and then just write at, writes at that scale, which 
then would dis could distort the meaning of everything or to be so myopic to as to read one or two texts and think that they can explain this whole generalization so there is a problem in choosing either one or the other and what he is attempting to say then is that let me say how i have found a way out of this dilemma so that i can't be too general and at the same time avoid being too specific and minute in my handling of the materials that's where part 2 ends so what has he clarified to us in part 2 right first of all that the orient material orient did exist right and it has always existed but the project of the book is not to tell the corresponding stories of the orient not to make orient speak for itself if i could steal foucault's words about madness but to study how the orientalist discourse creates the idea of the orient then he he talks about that we can't study this without studying the power structure within which the the orientalist discourse is produced because part of the reason the europeans are able to produce that discourse is because they have the power to do so so part of his study then must also involve a study of that power right and then he finally gives us the the two methodological problems that he has to contend with in the meantime he also teaches us about how gramsci's theorization of hegemony and consent plays a role in the construction of orientalism not just academic where people willingly accept the premises of the orientalists but in the cultural domain as the knowledge permeates the culture about the orient people willingly accept the idea of the orient as represented to them and then in the end of the chapter you know his question of methodology whether to be too general or too specific and how to find a way somewhere in between and that is what he will discuss in the next part of the introduction so that's all i have to say today now uh, pretty soon you know uh, a playlist will come up please click on it and do watch the previous videos and, and a little more materials that i have uh, and other than that if you have any questions about today's discussion or about the past discussions please please post them in the comment section and i'll try to answer them uh, you might have noticed that uh, our first conversation there was a question in the comments about the use of the term surrogacy and i was able to record a brief uh, lecture on that so uh, the more you uh, contribute and the more you interact with the materials the better this discussion is going to be so that's all i have today uh, i'll come back with part 3 of the introduction and hope that you will have some questions and you'll show some interest so until then thank you so much and as always peace and love